One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. My guest on this week's show has always felt out of step with modern times. It's an attitude that manifests in lots of different ways, like say, when one of his kids comes home with a flat tire on their bike. Now, my immediate reaction is to yell. That's, that's how I grew up, high volume. <laughs> I'd come home with a flat tire on my bicycle, my father would be like, what the fuck is this? I don't know. I didn't see the nail. My wife grew up with a mother that was more forgiving. This accidents happen. <laughs> Just as long as you were not injured, we could always replace it. <laughs> My father was like, guess who's walking this summer? <laughs> this is the last laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and that was Sebastian Maniscalco from his 2019 Netflix special, Stay Hungry. And like most clips from his act, it gets even funnier when you can see what he's doing with his face and body. For the past several years, Sebastian has been one of the highest grossing stand-up comics in the game, selling out huge venues like Radio City Music Hall and Madison Square Garden. Now, as of today, his latest special, Is It Me?, is streaming on Netflix. And yet, still, somehow, the 49-year-old comedian has not reached the stratospheric levels of fame that peers like Jerry Seinfeld, Chris Rock, Amy Schumer, and many others have achieved. As we discuss in this episode, that might be because he's remained laser-focused on stand-up, instead of pursuing TV and movie projects. But now that is finally starting to change. After popping up in small but key roles in Oscar-worthy films like Green Book and The Irishman, he is about to release his own movie called About My Father, and he tapped none other than Robert De Niro for the titular role. So before we get to the interview, I want to tell you a little bit about Comedy Gives Back. On Laughing Thursday, December 8th, comedians and comedy clubs all over the country are teaming up for the Laughing for Good fundraising initiative. This one-night national holiday fundraiser will help Comedy Gives Back continue to be the safety net for the comedy community with medical treatment, financial assistance, and more. And you can help, too. If you're able to, please consider making a recurring donation on Laughing Thursday. No matter how big or small, just text LAUGH to 707070 to donate. That's the word LAUGH to 707070. All right. Here's me with Sebastian Maniscalco. Where are you right now? Are you home? Are you on the road? What's what's going on? Uh, where am I? I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I got to look out. Is it hard to remember where you are day to day? You must be go travel so much. I had to look out the window to see where I was. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was in Naples, Florida for Thanksgiving, and then uh, I came out here. Uh, 
couple nights ago. I did Asheville last night. Tonight I do Charlotte. Then I bounce to Rhode Island tomorrow. And then to Massachusetts and New Hampshire. And then done. And we're done. And then we're done for a while. And then you get to go home for a bit? No, then I go to New York for uh, <laughs> Jimmy Fallon and, uh, and some other shows that I'm doing to promote. It just keeps going, yeah. Well, uh, well, congrats on the new special. I just got to see it, um, and, and really enjoyed it. It's a, it's a very, it's a big special. It's a very Rat Pack, uh, influenced obviously. And you talk about that at the beginning of it. Yeah, it is kind of inspired by the Rat Pack. It is in Las Vegas and I wanted to, uh, I don't know. I just want to do something a little different. Not that anybody never has dressed up in a tuxedo for a special before, but I just wanted to promote the fact that it was a little bit more of uh, just dressing up for it. It was just a throwback to how Las Vegas kind of used to be back in the 50s and 60s. Yeah. And you asked the audience to dress up as well? Yeah, we we it wasn't a requirement. It was a it was just a uh, can you please dress up in formal wear? And I think about maybe twenty five to thirty percent of those people did, and and I think we moved them down. People that were dressed up, we kind of saved seats in the front to to move them. Well, so it's, it, it's a good incentive. You know, you get better seats if you dress up. Yeah, the way it was shot, it looks like the room is all dressed up, but it was only very few. Yeah. I like those images at the beginning of where you actually put yourself in the Rat Pack. And uh, do, do you feel like you would have fit in with that crowd? Do you feel like you, you maybe would have fit in better with that crowd than the than current uh, <laughs> than the current crowd? Uh, I Obviously, I didn't know those guys intimately. I just kind of was in love with the presentation of not only those guys uh, off stage, but on stage. I just feel like you know, it's a yearning for that time to kind of maybe come back. Uh, it just seems like things are very casual nowadays. I mean, I remember, yeah, I used, I used to work in the corporate world and it was a casual Friday. And now it's, <laughs> now it's, it's like work from home in your pajamas. Yeah. That's the, that's what everybody does now. I feel like there is a, a big theme of your comedy, like you were saying, you know, of longing for the, the good old days or, um, you know, wanting things to be more like they were. Do you feel like you that's increased over time as you get older? Do you get more and more frustrated with modern society as you as you age? Yeah, I I have this thing for nostalgia in my act where I I often compare. Oh, this is how. You know, I, I guess the best example was this doorbell bit I used to do about the doorbell ringing back then and how it, how it is now. And, uh, yeah, I feel, especially now having kids, I feel like kind of the way I grew up kind of simple, no, you know, there's just a simple upbringing, but we had a great time. And sometimes you want to give that same thing to your children. And, uh, I'm thinking now is that, is that possible or is that, is that something that, you know, in today's climate, is that something that my kids are, I know they're not going to experience the same thing I experienced, obviously, but I just want to implement some of those kind of old world, old school values that I grew up with in my kids. And uh, I'm finding that, yeah, I can do that at the home and it's still that at the home, but just the way the world is today, as soon as they kind of go out into the world, it's it's very different and, uh, than I grew up. Yeah, I mean, you have that long bit. I think towards the beginning of the special, where you talk about the kid at your um, one of your kids' schools who identifies as a lion. Uh, is that a is that a true story? Is that something that that really happened, or is that sort of a um, a metaphor for for how you 
how you uh, how you see parenting. No, well, that's that's not at my kid's school. No, it's a story I actually heard from somebody that I that I made it sound like my kid was going through that. That's that's kind of like a lot of times in comedy you take it's it's like almost like a movie where you take things that you've heard or you piece them together. Another example is that my, when my dad. I told a joke about my dad murdering uh, animals in the backyard by putting antifreeze on bologna. He never did that. I actually heard that from somebody else and then just kind of weaved it into my act and gave that characteristic to my father. And I think nowadays people get really hopped up in regards to things that our comedians are saying and think it's true or think it's whatever. And it's just it's just kind of putting a mirror on society and, and, and kind of making light of everything. Um, yeah. Maybe there used to be a feeling of, you know, understanding that what a comedian was saying was just a joke or was not necessarily based in truth. But now you feel like it does seem like people take comedy more seriously than they used to. I think a minority takes uh, it seriously. A very small portion, I think of the, uh, the populace gets hopped up when it comes to stand up comedy from what I'm seeing on the road, that's not the case. People are dying to laugh. They have a sense of humor. They are not taking things uh, to heart or seriously. And it's just made, you know, if, if you don't like the material, don't like it, just, you know, you don't have to listen to it. It's just, I just don't know when it became like certain things are off limits when it comes to humor. That's what kind of comedians do. They kind of point out everything that's going on in life and, 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 and put a humorous spin on it. But uh, nowadays that doesn't seem to be the case. Yeah. I mean, I've been watching your comedy for a long time. You've never been a particularly political or controversial comedian. Um, you do kind of imagine throughout that special, this special, you, you do this thing where you kind of imagine members of the audience criticizing you for being politically incorrect um, or, you know, sort of anticipating the, the pushback that you might get on certain things. Um why did you decide to include that? Is that something that you've actually experienced people coming up to you or online or, or something where they are, are pushing back on things that you say in that way? No, not necessarily having to do with me, but I, that, that whole thing of recognizing that people might get upset based on what I'm saying was influenced by the, uh, the, the state of comedy today. So I'm, I'm I'm just instead of you saying that you're offended, I'm going to tell you you're probably going to be a little bent out of shape about what I'm saying here. And it just it actually if if you're in the room or you're on stage, you can actually feel a sigh of relief when I say that and it, it allows the people to loosen up a little bit and it actually enjoy the humor rather than looking around and, and going, is anybody laughing? I'm just kind of giving the the audience an outlet to say, hey, he recognizes that people might be offended or whatnot, uh, and people get a good laugh out of it. Um, and I, I just, I just as a comedian, noticed that it worked for me to say that and have a much more enjoyable set. Not that I wouldn't if if I didn't say that, but I just noticed that there is a little bit of a tension relief when I kind of mention uh, – that this this might cause people to sweat. Yeah, I mean, in the same way that audiences might take what comedians say too seriously, I think there are a lot of comedians working right now who sort of are courting controversy in a way, or they're saying things knowing that they're going to be controversial. I'm not sure that's what what you're doing, but do you do you ever worry about 
sort of sparking that sort of controversy or backlash in the way that that other you know big comics have yeah it's not like i'm seeking it out it's not like i'm seeking out controversial topics it's just i'm always true to myself true to what i see and i've always been an observational comedian and this so happens to be the next iteration of it this is what i find funny and it's not like i'm looking to press people's buttons at all i don't even think what i'm saying in this special is 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 controversial it's just i i just look at it as fun people are having a good time with it and uh and i i don't i don't i don't even i'm no i'm not seeking it out i'm just being who i am and if people have a problem with it listen you cannot appease everybody someone's always gonna have something to say uh and if i edit myself and i don't feel the uh freedom to do what i think is funny I might as well stop doing stand up because then as soon as you start editing yourself, you're not going to have any, you're not going to have an act. Yeah. Uh, you experienced a, a little bit of this, I think, when you uh, hosted the the MTV Video Music Awards, um, which uh, maybe wasn't necessarily your audience, a lot of younger uh, people and influencers and all that. Um, how did you, how did you sort of handle that in the moment? Um, you know, did you feel like it was connecting in a different or not connecting in the way that you normally feel like you you connect with an audience uh, that that's your audience that comes to see you that audience is it's a very difficult audience to perform in front of because uh you know it's a music show uh it's younger it skews younger uh, they're standing up you know it, it, the environment is not yeah. such where comedy can be <laughs> digested it's about the opposite uh, of your of of the audience for your special all dressed up in tuxedos and seated yeah, and ready to see yeah. you and yeah, not to say that you know that younger people do enjoy what I do, but it just in, in that in that particular setting and the, and the material that I chose to do during that that set was kind of poking fun at the the the, the audience and and whatnot. And I didn't even think it was it was basically material that I had previously done and kind of incorporated it into the MTV Video Music Awards, which I never really had a problem with. But after that, you know, of course, you know, people felt that it was uh inappropriate or what ha- what have you and and you know so be it it's it's just it, it is what it is i i just do what i do and no matter what situation it is sometimes it works sometimes it doesn't this is happening for the first time mtv what they're doing is is they they notice that we're living in ultra sensitive time right so if you feel triggered or you feel offended by anything I'm saying up here or anything the musical artists are doing, they're providing a safe space (laughs) backstage where you get some stress balls and a blankie. And also, Little Nas X brought his horse, which will, yeah, horses backstage which will double as an emotional support animal. So if you'd like to talk to your ushers, they will send you back to to where that's happening. Personally, uh, I would remove you from the arena, put you in your car, and send you home, but they opted with the safe space. Yeah, I mean, that was a probably more high-profile gig um, for you than than other things that you've done. Did you have any regrets about about doing it afterwards or did you feel good about your decision to take that on 
Well, when it was first presented to me, I didn't necessarily jump at the opportunity because I thought I'm, I was like 46 at the time. I'm an older guy. Uh, this, this in, historically has been given to comedians who are, you know, in the pop culture zeitgeist and, 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 and are younger, maybe in their twenties or what have you. So I knew I wasn't probably the, the, the guy that a lot of people were even going to know in that environment. But as a, as a kid who grew up watching MTV and the Michael Jackson videos and, you know, uh, Kurt Loder and all that stuff. I'm like, how can I not do this? This is like, this is like a, uh, something that would run full circle for me. I used to watch this show and now I'm hosting this show. So it was something I thought that it was kind of an honor to do, but maybe not necessarily, uh, you know, maybe it came 15 years too late for me. <laughs> yeah. Coming up, Sebastian reminisces about his early days in comedy and looks ahead to the autobiographical movie that could finally make him a household name. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to our episodes with other stand-up comedians like Jim Gaffigan, Nikki Glaser, Dane Cook, and more, along with everything else from our free archive. And you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Sebastian Maniscalco. I want to talk about a little bit about your beginnings in comedy, um, but even just as we were talking about how the comedy world has changed, how what are other ways that you feel like the the comedy world, the stand up world, has changed or evolved since you started? Since you've been in it for a while now. Yeah, so I started in 1998, and uh, there was really no social media to speak of back then, or YouTube, or anything like that. the The whole thing for a comedian back then, at least for me, was getting on stage every night multiple times and working out my thoughts and, and and figuring out what's funny and what's not. And now you fast forward, whatever, 24 years later, 
I was just actually talking to my opener uh, last night about this, Pat, Pat McGann, saying, is our comedian still going out there and doing a Tuesday night uh, show in front of 13 people to see if the material works? Or has it now shifted to you are now doing YouTube videos or TikTok videos and doing something humorous there? Because I see some of these TikTok people or YouTube people or whoever, you know, these social media influencers, whatever, doing stand-up. And I find that, wow, like, I, I remember I wasn't headlining a club until eight to ten years in. And that was eight to ten years of doing comedy every night. Some of these people are headlining clubs off of TikTok. <laughs> yeah, totally different. For me. I know how long it took to even establish an act. And I don't know, I don't know how, how guys are doing that off of talking into a, a, a camera with a ring light. I don't, I, don't know how, I don't know how that translates. So I guess teach zone, everybody, if people are laughing, they're laughing. I, just, I think that the game has changed a little bit. Yeah. Um, you started out really at the, the comedy store was your, was your home club at the beginning in L.A.? Yeah. What was the scene like there at that time? Who were the who were the big comics when you were coming up that you got to see who maybe had some influence on on your style or that you were you were watching at that time? Actually, ironically enough, I was influenced early on as a small kid watching uh, you know Johnny Carson and the comedians that came on Johnny Carson, whether it be Don Rickles or Jerry Seinfeld or whoever were the comedians were in the eighties. I kind of learned a lot from them. When I got to the comedy store, it was on its way. I thought it was going to close, to be honest oh, really? with you. Nobody was there. It was, this is how bad the comedy store was in 98 to 2002, I'd say. You'd get a set, you get a spot, shows start at nine. You would have to call the club to see if anybody showed up <laughs> so they could start the show. And uh, they needed, I think, five people in the room in order for <laughs> five, them to start five the show. Five person minimum. Yeah. So, so back then, there wasn't really a lot of big names coming through the comedy store. I mean, the ones that used to pop in were like a, an Eddie Griffin, a Dice Clay, maybe a, a Wayans brother would come in. Um, but I didn't really learn a lot necessarily watching comedians at the comedy store. It was, it was far earlier that I've always been a huge fan of stand-up. And when I was at the comedy store, it was more like a gymnasium for me to just kind of work out material, get comfortable on stage, going up at one o'clock in the morning in front of, you know, 10 people and five were passed out and the other five were, you know, like those were the challenges to make people laugh. And that's where you kind of build your bones doing stand up in front of people that necessarily might not want to laugh or be there. Or it's just, it's just a fight, like a struggle. And the comedy, the comedy store was the best place for, for me. Yeah. Still is. Um, I think physicality has become such a big part of your style, um, you know, especially playing these huge venues. Was that always the case? Was that something that, that really came with, with playing bigger stages? Or were you doing that kind of stuff uh, from the beginning? Not, not right out of the gate. I wasn't doing a lot of physical humor. I just noticed when I did a little physicality in my act that it was a surprise to a lot of people because just my appearance just the way I kind of handle myself on stage you wouldn't think that I'd be you know making these faces or making these 
uh, wild movements with my body. I think it was a, a raw stress for less bit where I threw something across the room and really acted it out that I, that I know that I noticed, Oh, people are really gravitating towards this physicality that I'm doing. So it kind of grew from there. And, you know, I never wanted to do too much of it just because it, you know, if you do too much of it, it's like, all right, already. So you just kind of give like splashes of it during the act. And, uh, and, you know, especially nowadays, it's like the, the days of just standing there telling jokes behind the microphone. Yeah, it's, it's great. But the, the way atten- attention spans are nowadays, it's like, you gotta, you know, you gotta give them something to, to look yeah, at. You gotta really uh, engage. Um, yeah, one that stands out uh, to me from the new special is when you uh, imitate a, a greyhound dog uh, running through the park. Listen, I'm sorry. You don't own a greyhound. All right? Top speed on this thing is 48 miles per hour. All right? They're a sight hound, which means once they see something, they go and get it, and they don't stop until they retrieve it. I don't know if you've ever seen one run. It is frightening, right? The ears are pinned back, and street legal it's it's kicking up sad i just like as i'm telling the story i'm visualizing the story in my head and as i'm visualizing the dog i just i just naturally act out what i'm seeing so that i noticed got a laugh when i acted out the dog when i did it like once so I just like, all right, that works. So maybe add another one. And, you know, they always say comedy works best in three. So I do three, three versions of it. And uh, again, it's just like, for me, it's not, it's not really a strong joke in its entirety. Sometimes, sometimes the joke is good. But if you add that last thing, that could make, that could make it better. And sometimes that's what I do with the physicality. Sometimes when the, you know, the the joke might be lacking something, if you act out a portion of it, it might make what you said prior uh, funnier or the the bit a little bit more whole. Um, so yeah, I mean, sometimes that's what physical comedy for me is used for. Is uh, it could be used to make a joke. Um, better than it is and also it could be used i, I do another joke with acting out a uh what is it an alpaca which i didn't put in the set which i was pining on whether or not i should put it in the set and that was just the joke was really good and i i added that which made it which made it like the, the whole thing for me as a comedian is try to make the jokes as good as what you just heard or better, right? That's, that's the challenge for me as a comedian. Because I don't want you to come to a show and go, first half was good, but in the middle, oh, and then, then at the end, it's terrible. You know, like, I'm trying to make it funny throughout. Um, and it's, 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 diff- it's difficult because some jokes are better. Than, they're just, they are. They're better than others. 
but I want, I'm trying to make them all kind of equally good. Well, in some ways, I'm sure you're always trying to top that that doorbell bit that you mentioned because that's probably the one that people know the best, and um, I'm sure bring up the most or request when there's an opportunity to request. Um, why do you think that one in particular connected so well with people? You know, went uh, viral on online and and really uh, has become a defining bit for you. I was sitting in my house a couple weeks ago, just relaxing. My doorbell rang. This is weird. It's a different feeling when your doorbell rings today opposed to 20 years ago, right? 20 years ago, your doorbell rang? That was a happy moment in your house. It's called company. You'd be sitting there on a Thursday night watching TV. Your doorbell rang, the whole family shot off the couch. Oh my God! Put the lights on, somebody's here. We got people. I think it was like a multi-generational joke where it kind of hit everybody from a top, from an eight-year-old to an 80-year-old and everybody in between because everybody could relate to how it used to be when the doorbell rang and now everybody could relate to how it is now. And uh, I find that jokes that are, people are living are the funniest jokes. People are, li people are living that joke. So uh, I find when you get a moment in time like that where you kind of hit on uh, uh, a situation that people are very familiar with and they do, but they've never thought about it in any other way. I think those are the, the gems that comedians are, are looking for. At least that's what, what I'm looking for. Very hard to replicate and get, get it all at the right time. But I think that's the reason why people, any, any joke I do that's observational that people are living, I feel it does really well. And uh, it's, it's just a challenge to find those little morsels in, in everyday life where, where people go, oh, do that yeah those i know that's i know that's what that's what resonates with me oh totally yeah i think anything that you can relate to and that's also i think the challenge that a lot of comedians have faced as they get more successful and they're riding private jets and they're doing all these things that most people don't do then maybe you have less uh experiences that are relatable to people so do you think about that at all in terms of keeping those experiences in your life that you can then refer to that I, that are relatable to anybody yeah, that is that is definitely. I mean, I'm taking a year and a half off of doing like a major tour, and I'm going to live my life. I'm going to, you know, take the kids uh, to here, or Disneyland, or whatever, whatever it is. And I feel like the more I live my life, the more comedy comes from it. Now, yeah, am I going to Target every week like I used to to go buy shampoo? No, no. And, and I don't think a lot of people are because no, they're, they're using they're Amazon. On, they're using <laughs> Amazon. So everybody, everybody uses Amazon. So, okay, there, there's, there's, a, there's a place where you could play how Amazon works because everybody uses Amazon. Um, yeah, but, you know, like I used to, uh, you know, book my own travel, go through the Expedia thing. I mean, I, I even notice sometimes like things I don't normally do uh, that I used to do, how some of that's changed, and I haven't noticed it because I haven't been participating in it. And once once I participate in it, then I'm like, okay, like I went to Starbucks today down the street just to get a cup of coffee. It was packed. A fan came up. He goes, oh, what are you hanging out with the commoners? I'm like, 
Yeah, I'm getting yeah. a cup of coffee. Going to like Starbucks, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I like to do, I like to just do what I normally did before I had any type of recognition. I think that is where kind of a lot of relatability happens for comedians. You know, I don't really, I don't really talk about things that are the perks of success. I don't talk about taking a private jet. I don't talk about staying at nice hotels. Yeah. Because people can't relate to that, right? They can't relate to it. Or if I do talk about it on a podcast, I'll give a spin of someone who's not used to this lifestyle and the question the questions i have when it comes to private air travel i'm like do i tip you know like do i tip the pilots like what, what do i do like i'm trying to be like a spokesman for for you know for people that might not be experiencing this because i'm experiencing it for the it's very new to me so i i never i never like to I don't know. I just find it low end to brag about that type of stuff right, or totally. talk, talk, talk about it. Like everybody's doing it. Yeah. Right. Um, I feel like there is this narrative about you in some of the other articles I was reading, you know, leading up to this and things where you're this hugely accomplished, successful comedian, but you're not quite the household name of some of the, you know, other people like you mentioned, like Jerry Seinfeld or, or people like that. Do you feel that that's starting to change? Do you do you feel like that narrative is is going away or that you're kind of reaching that level of of some of those, um, you know, people who maybe came a little bit before you? Uh, I think the reason why that is, is I haven't really been in the mainstream of any particular successful TV show or movie. I didn't pop off of yeah that I, you, you I, really I just stand up yeah it's just like my fans know who i am and that's great but i am noticing i'd say over the pandemic i have to tell you coming out of that i've noticed more recognition of maybe people knowing who i am just about round and round and about i, I never used to have any really recognition at a mall or an airport and i, and I to be honest with you i could I don't, I don't, I travel alone. It's not like I got the security with me. It's, it's, uh, but it it is changing. And I I think it's changing because of some of the film and TV I've been associated with along with the standup. Yeah. I mean, the Netflix thing specials are obviously huge. Um, you also, as you said, have been doing some more, uh, acting, um, you, you managed to, to get uh, roles in two, uh, best picture, uh, one one best picture winner and one best picture nominee in uh, Green Book and The Irishman. So that was pretty. Uh, that was pretty good. <laughs> yeah, no, that was uh, definitely a change of pace for me, and uh, and I I enjoyed doing those little small parts. Movies as a whole have been a little difficult for me just because of the nature of how movies are shot, and you know you always hear you're sitting there running, waiting, and whatnot. Uh, so yeah, that's been a little. Uh, hard to get used to, but uh, I enjoy I enjoy doing those parts. Yeah, they, they both also, you know, you're playing characters who are uh, part of that bygone era. So there's something there's a theme there too, where I think you're you get to kind of enter that world that you were talking about, um, that the the Rat Pack and and all that um, with those movies. Yeah, it kind of threw me back into that time period. Uh, I never really thought about it the, the way you just uh, explained it, but yeah. I, I played uh, kind of period pieces in the, in those movies, uh, but yeah, working with those guys. I mean, it was it was I had a lot of anxiety working with uh, you know Peter Farrelly and Vigo and 
De Niro, Pesci. I mean, again, these are guys I, I had posters on my wall and not next thing you know, I'm doing a scene with Joe Pesci at the Copacabana. <laughs> I'm like, crazy. Joe, Joe, Joe. Well, listen. You can't say that stuff right back to you. Okay? You can't do that. Why not? Dick Rickles is the only one who can make jokes. The man's a boss. So I'm a boss. He's a boss. We're all supposed to be brothers, right? Yeah, you're a boss. I know, but we don't want to have a beef now, okay? We're brothers, right? That's right. It's a brothers. We're brothers? You're brothers. We're brothers. I'm not arguing with you. Right? Everybody's a brother. That's right. You're a brother. You're his brother. I'm not, but you guys are. So that's what I would like if you just... All right. Okay? We're brothers. You're brothers. Right. Yeah. It's my birthday. Happy birthday. Happy All birthday. Right. Happy right. birthday. birthday. Get the fuck out of here. What stands out from that experience of, of filming that scene in particular? Well, a couple things. They took the Copacabana, or they took the Gotham Comedy Club in New York City and transformed it into the Copacabana, which is where the first scene I was going to do with De Niro and Pesci was, which I found very ironic because the Gotham Comedy Club was the first comedy club I performed in, in New York City. <laughs> so you at least felt uh, you had some recognition of that uh, location. Yeah, uh, and then secondly, I was, you know, I, I couldn't sleep for two hours prior due to the fact that I'm going to be in a scene with two legendary actors and Martin Scorsese is directing this thing. So they were very, very accommodating with me. Uh, very friendly, very nice guys. Uh, and it was like anything else. As soon as I did like a role rehearsal with them, because there's a part of me that was going should I be here? Am I good enough? I'm a comedian. I'm not really an actor. I haven't done this a lot. And now I'm doing it with the best. So there's a little self-doubt going into that. But, you know, as soon as you did the first rehearsal, I started to feel like, yeah, I belong here. I deserve this. And, uh, and uh, it, was, it was good. I learned a lot. It was, it was a lesson in movie making. Uh, even though I was there for like six or seven days, it was definitely gave me the confidence moving forward to do other projects with the confidence that I need. Yeah, well, you must have done something right, because now Robert De Niro is going to play your father in your movie. Is that right? Yeah, so I co-wrote a movie with my writing partner, Austin Earl, loosely based on my life. And uh, we wrote it thinking, you know, it's never get made. It just we wrote it, and <laughs> next next thing you know, Robert De Niro had a copy, loved it, wanted to read it with a group of people. I guess that's how he kind of makes a decision on whether or not he wants to do a movie. He has like a, a reading, so we hired actors. We all got in a room together, and again, I'm sitting there. This is like surreal. I this is my my Robert De Niro's playing my dad in the movie, <laughs> and sure enough, he he enjoyed it, loved it, signed on for it. And the thing that pops out in my head about that experience was Robert De Niro wanted to get to know my father. So my father flew out to Oklahoma where he was shooting a movie with uh, Leonardo DiCaprio at the time and spent three days with De Niro. And De Niro wanted to know like how, how he wore his hat, how he held a cigar, uh, you know, how he's a hairstylist, how do you cut hair? And then he wanted my dad to come to the set and kind of coach him through a scene where De Niro's doing a die job. Again, I'm sitting there and my father's with De Niro. And of course, my father came up to me and goes, How much am I getting paid for this? And I go, Hey, he goes, Yeah, I'm, he goes, I'm missing because he still works and he had to take off work to be there. I'm like, Dad, you work with Robert De Niro. You're worried about uh, getting paid? He goes, I'm fucking losing money here. So uh, just to kind of see them to interact with one another and then subsequently showing my father the movie 
at my house uh, a couple months ago, uh, and he was crying uh, at the end of the movie. Just, I think a lot hit him at that point. It basically, the movie's a love letter to my father, and and uh, you know, to see De Niro playing him in a movie, I, I don't even know what that does to to someone just to see that. Uh, but he was he was emotional about it. He said he liked it. He's very critical about what I do. He, he has no problem. Hell yeah. No problems telling me I suck or you should do this, you should do that. He's very opinionated about, especially my stand-up. I'll know, I, like, I'm doing Fallon on Monday. I'll, I I will know whether my father likes the appearance on whether he uh, calls me or not. If if he doesn't say anything or when I call him, he doesn't say anything about it, I know he didn't like it. <laughs> so he knows not to say anything if he, if he didn't like it. <laughs> yeah. So if he mentions that he loves it, I know he loves it. If he doesn't say anything, I know he hated it. Uh, so is the movie the movie's finished now, or what's what are the plans to to put it out? Finished, done, uh, coming out next year. Uh, don't exactly have a date on it yet, but uh, it's coming out next year. And uh, yeah, I got I got a couple movies coming out, a few movies coming out actually next year, which uh, it's going to be interesting to see. I'm, I got a little part in this Mario Brothers movie um, that. The trailer just dropped a couple of days ago, so it's it's fun to do these movies, these animated movies, especially now that I have kids five and three, uh, to go to the movies with them and have you know daddy voicing a part is is pretty cool being a father. So yeah, I mean, as we said, you're you're pretty famous already, and you get recognized and all that. How do you feel about the prospect of being even more recognizable, or it being even more difficult for you to go into Starbucks and that kind of thing? I don't know. I, 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 I'm fine with it. I, I don't uh, until it becomes an issue. I'm right now. I don't. I don't really mind it if people want to take a photo or say they enjoy what I do. I, it doesn't really bother me. It bothers me when I'm with my family and you know trying to like. I got my kid. I'm trying to dress my kid like uh, whatever. Like put a jacket on and I got someone wanting to take a photo. It could be a little, but it's part of the game. It's believe me. If you would have talked to me 15 years ago. And said, "Oh, would would you ever uh, you know, be bothered if somebody came up to you and <laughs> at Starbucks?" I mean, fuck no. So yeah, I I don't mind it. You got to be grateful for what you got. Uh, so now I want to do our our segment called the first laugh. I'm going to run through uh, some some firsts in your career uh, in your life in, in comedy, um, and we can talk about them. So going all the way back to childhood, um, what was the first piece of comedy that made you laugh really hard, or or one of the first that you could remember? I don't know if this was the first, but what stands out early on was John Ritter in Three's Company. I really enjoyed watching him. And that's where I got a lot of my physical humor from was, was was Ritter and how he used to fall and pop up and have a face. And you could just laugh at the reaction of the guy's face or what have you. So I was a huge Three's Company fan. I would watch it like game tape. <laughs> uh, every time it came out, it was on Nick at Night. It came on. I watched you know. I, same episode would come on and I would watch it over and over again and I, I, I could care less. But yeah, John Ritter was one of the first influences. That's great. Uh, do you remember the first time that you knew you were funny, that you could make other people laugh? Uh, yeah, it was around the kitchen table. I I always kind of stated that the, the, the kitchen table was my first stage making my family laugh based on my observations at school and what have you. I was never really a class clown. I just kind of observed uh some of the situations at school came home and reported it back to my family and, and they would laugh. So I, I guess fam, making my family laugh was kind of the first 
inkling I had that I had a sense of humor and a knack for storytelling. When you think about your very first time performing stand-up, uh, what what springs to mind? Where were you? How did it go? Uh, what, how do you think about it now? First time doing stand-up was at Northern Illinois University. I attended school there, and I won a comedy contest to open up for the headliner that was coming to the school. And uh, I had my parents come out. My sister was there, and I. It was the worst set I ever had. It was in front of a primarily black audience, and they were yelling. I didn't know what they were yelling at the time, but I found out later on they were yelling "Sandman, Sandman," and Sandman was who they called for when an axe sucked at the Apollo Theater. And I was like, "Sandman, what the hell are they talking about?" And um, it, it was. It was really really bad however i did know that this was kind of where i was supposed to be although it was an awful experience i just knew this is my calling this is what i enjoy doing and i i knew that you know i wasn't going to be a hit out of the box it's just going to take a lot of work like everything in life takes a lot of work you don't become a bodybuilder overnight you gotta lift the weights that's so funny so many comedians i talk to talk about how their first very first set went really well, and then they bombed the next, you know, fifty. But that that first one kind of kept them going. But so it's interesting that, that it really that wasn't the case for you. But you still you knew that you you wanted to keep going. Yeah, something in me is like I know this was awful, but in some way, shape, or form, it did feel comfortable up there. Yeah. Do you remember the first joke that really worked that you wrote that you could keep going back to that that really connected with people um, that you felt good about? Yeah, there was a joke early on. I used to tell about getting Starbucks coffee and how they used to order like these frappuccinos with whipped cream and the guy had sandals on and I, I would make fun of the guy wearing sandals. Uh, and I would say, if the girl, if the girl, girls, if you're dating a guy wearing sandals, how's he going to protect you? Is he going to take his flip flop off and slap you with the flip flop? It, it was something around flip flops or whatever. It was like a joke that I knew if I went to the Starbucks frappuccino joke. Although, although I've heard iterations of this joke throughout the course of time, I, I mean, I, this is like when Starbucks was you know, 1999. Yeah, right. Uh, and that and that Ross for Less joke was like a killer for me. I, I just remember that would be my closer on these shows I used to do in LA at Miyagi. Are you from LA? Yeah. Well, I'm, I live in LA. I'm, I'm from Boston, but I live in LA now. Uh, like 10 years, uh, something like that. So not not too long. So there was there was places around town, Dublin's, Miyagi's, uh, that used to host these nights. And uh, I remember Ross for Less was my like closer at these big, like, if you were doing Dublin's on a Tuesday, you know, Dane Cook was there, and it was like one of these, Justin Timberlake was in the audience. Uh, I'm like, oh, I'm bringing out my Ross, Ross bit tonight. <laughs> um, I always like talking to comedians about their late night stand-up debuts i believe yours was on the tonight show with jay leno in 2007 if that sounds right um what do you remember about that experience i remember jay noticing i was nervous and went out into the audience like he he did his warm-up with, with the audience came back into my room saw i was nervous went back out and told the audience hey Got a first time guest on the show tonight. It's his first time on uh, TV. Want you to be really, you know, really supportive of him. And I, I thought that was really, really nice of him to do. That's kind of what stuck out about that experience. 
My next guest making his very first appearance on The Tonight Show. He's a member of Vince Vaughn's Wild West Comedy Tour. He'll be headlining the Improv in Houston, August 2nd through the 5th. Please welcome Sebastian Maniscalco. <laughs> Good to be here. <laughs> Last night went on a first date dinner. Yeah, and ladies, what the guy is doing on the first date, he's just trying to figure out how much the bill is in his head <laughs> before it's dropped on the table. Now, I went out for sushi. I have no idea how much sushi costs. Chicken, salad, steak, I know what that goes for, right? <laughs> A dynamite roll? I have no idea what the hell that is. It's also, Glenn Close was on the uh, show. And when I went to go to the, after my set, I went to go sit down. I, re I remember giving Glenn Close a kiss on the hand. Like I, took, <laughs> I took her hand and I gave her a kiss. I'm like, what the fuck am I doing? <laughs> but yeah, those are the two things that stick out. That's hilarious. Uh, do you remember uh, the first time you met one of your comedy heroes, someone who you just really looked up to in comedy, um, what it was like to meet them for the first time? I think it was when I met Seinfeld at Gotham Comedy Club. He came in uh, to do a guest set on my show, and then I went up after him, and I kind of made fun of the fact that he was wearing a scarf on sta stage. And then later on found out that he had stayed for 45 minutes to watch my act. And the club owner said, you know, he normally doesn't stay that long. And the next night, I still hadn't met him. Well, I met him briefly before he went on stage. The next night, he sent his wife to see me with her friends. And then his agent was there. And then his agent called Jerry and, and he put him on the phone with me. And he's like, oh, man, I really love what you do. It's really great. And uh, and then uh, we should go hang out next time. I'm sitting there going, wow, I can't believe it. And again, I watched this guy's show. I remember him doing the Jerry Lewis telethon. And his joke about a hair being in the shower, when you're taking a shower at somebody else's uh, shower or whatever, and there's a hair, and it's like kind of like inching up the wall or something <laughs> about a hair. And I'm like, and then now we're going to go hang out and – he asked me to do his comedians and cars getting coffee and yeah, that was great. Out there, I love that so. episode. Yeah, thanks. It, it was that was kind of special for me. Yeah, very. Um, do you have a story or memory from your career that makes you laugh now, but really was not funny when it happened? Yeah, J Jimmy Fallon show. I uh, was doing a shit ton of press in New York City, and it culminated at the end of the week with a Jimmy Sa uh, Fallon set. And I had my wife there, my mother, my mother-in-law. I had agents, publicists, all backstage. So I felt like I was having like a little party backstage and making sure everybody was okay. I'm, I'm thinking I got my sets four and a half minutes. I got down, don't worry about it. So I go up on stage and I start my act. And it's about 60 seconds into my act. I completely go blank. I, I, I've never had this happen before. I, I, I lost the act. I lost everything. I couldn't talk. I remember just saying, I'm I'm Italian. <laughs> God. And then I looked at the band. The band looked back at me and they're like, you know, 
yeah. fuck we gonna do? Yeah. <laughs> and, and there was a moment there. There was a, there was a moment there that I was going to, to, to turn back to Jimmy and go, can I, can I do this over? But I, I didn't know, like, are you allowed to do that? Can I, yeah. Can I do that? And then I, I popped out of it. It was almost like I popped out of a coma and then I picked up right where I left off. So I go to the chair and during the commercial break, I said, bro, I'm so sorry. I don't know what happened. He goes, don't worry about it. We'll edit it together. It's going to look great. And he said it so nonchalantly. I still was like, nah, there's something, something. But I couldn't rest. I couldn't relax until I saw it. And you would have never known. Only you, you could tell. You could Probably, tell probably you could tell, but no one else could tell. Yeah, there's a cut there, and then I'm coming out of it. And uh, the, the next time I went on Fallon, I said to Jimmy, I said, can we play? what you guys cut out <laughs> uh so then we watched you know the 10 seconds of of my nightmare on uh, jimmy fallon uh so yeah i uh, back then i was like my career's over this is done now looking back at it we all have a good laugh i mean normally we don't edit the comedians or any of that so we just just show it like that but this was uh this was bad oh this you, <laughs> here, here's the the clip here's sebastian maniscalco's stand-up debut on our show four years ago. <laughs> this is my father, right? Um, I, I, I've been working, I've been... Uh, I, I, <laughs> uh, nobody works like me. What? You're good. Not bad. Nobody works like me. That's a great bit. Nobody works like me. <laughs> One of my best jokes. <laughs> that's funny. Finally, I like to give my guests a chance to shout out uh, something else that's making them laugh right now. Is there any uh, thing you've seen, a comedian, a TV show, a movie, anything that really made you laugh recently that you want to give a little shout out to? You know, I I don't because I generally watch a lot of like docu series drama you're not watching like comedy that. i'm not watching a lot of comedy i don't i mean i couldn't even tell you i couldn't even tell you i watched old school the other night i always laugh at that movie. yeah that's a good one uh but there's nothing <laughs> that i've seen recently uh just because I, I i like to watch drama action and yeah. documentaries well old school is the, is the perfect uh uh movie and and adjective for you i think so that works out yeah right <laughs> Sebastian, thank you so much for doing this. It's been great talking with you and, and getting to know you a little bit. And yeah, I think your your next year sounds like it's going to be even bigger. So I'll be looking forward to that movie. We'll see, man. I appreciate you having me on the show and have a wonderful uh, holiday season. Thanks. You too. Okay. Thanks again to Sebastian Maniscalco for being my guest on this week's show. His latest hour-long stand-up special, Is It Me?, is available to stream starting today on Netflix. And you can find all of his upcoming tour dates at SebastianLive.com. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next week on the show. 
The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.